I'm glad you're here. Uh, the course, as it's titled here, is The Art of Dying. Now, that doesn't mean this is a course on active euthanasia, where I'm going to uh, give you lessons on how to die. That's not it. Uh, what I want to talk about is the kind of lessons that we can learn about how to approach our own death. Now, you think that's kind of a, a melancholy theme. Well, it is Lent, you know. From, from dust you come and from dust you go. And so... It, some of you were with me last year for Lent, and we went to hell last year, remember? <laughs> in Dante's Inferno. Well, I'm not going to quite get you there this year. Uh, get you there, hopefully, with somewhat of a perspective on the whole process of dying. And I do think there's an art to it. Now, of course, on one hand, physically, it, there's no art to it. It's just a matter of chemistry and physics. We all will die one of these days. But I think there is wisdom to be learned in realizing that we will die one of these days. And that's why I'm calling this art. Art is a matter of judgment and a matter of intuition. And I think there are great judgments that go involved in how we approach our life as we are nearing our own death. And in particular, as you see the subtitle, obviously I'm going to be referring to God in all this and our face to God and then the realization that we are mortal, that we will die. Now that is no surprise, even though much of our lives we live as though that will never happen. In fact, you know, the, one of the, the sins of adolescence that we hopefully grow out of is that we think there are no final consequences for things. That is, oh, if I, if I wreck the car, dad will pay for it. If I break the window, you know, dad will pay for it. If, if I, if I really offend you, I'll just apologize and it's all over with. We think there are no final consequences. Well, in fact, there is a big final consequence to things, and that is our mortality. All right, before I start, I want to open up with a prayer. <clears throat> our gracious Lord, from whom all great gifts come, our life, but also our death in Thee. We pray, O oh Lord, that which we do in here, the convictions of our mind and of our hearts, will enable us to be greater witnesses of Thee, more realizing of just how powerful Your presence is in our life, so that during this great season of the church here, that we realize even more so the significance of Thy Son's death, resurrection, for our lives. This I pray. Amen. Now, Today I'm just introducing this. I'm going to look at some ways in which people have thought about approaching death. I'm going to look at some artwork. And then in the subsequent weeks, what I want to look at are some biblical figures. In fact, when we come back next Sunday, I'm going to look at the death of Abraham and Moses, what they went through, how they approached their death. And then I'm going to look at some of the great saints that have died that we know some things about like St. Francis and St. Anselm of Canterbury, as they approach their death. We have things that they've written and testimonies about what they did. I'll also look at some great literary figures and how they approach their death and try to learn from them. For instance, I'm going to look at King Lear, who obviously, if you know much about the play, does die. In fact, he dies on the cross with his daughter, I mean, on the stage with his daughters. And he has a lot of things going on in his life before he dies. It's going to be a negative lesson for us, not a positive one. But a positive lesson from a fictional character is the very famous figure out of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov called Father Zosima, Z-O-S-I-M-A, if you know much about that great novel. And then on the fifth Sunday, 
I'm going to talk about some contemporary writers that I have read about how they approach their death or the death of a family member that I think can yield a lot of wisdom to us. And so I'm going to look at some scripture, I'm going to look at some saints, I'm going to look at some fiction, and then I'll look at some contemporary writers. But first of all, I want to look at this guy. St. Jerome. Now, I've not been, this is in Rome, uh, to see this famous painting, but it's, uh, you can see a lot of it. I have been to his grave, though. There's a chapel there in the Church of the Nativity. You went to the Church of the Nativity, didn't you, Victor? Did you been to Bethlehem? In Rome or in Jerusalem? No, in Jerusalem. Yes. Bethlehem, yes. yeah. yeah. The painting is in Rome. He is in buried in Bethlehem in the Church of the Nativity, yeah. Mm -hmm which is an interesting place. There's a little chapel there dedicated to St. Jerome where he was translating the Vulgate. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What is he doing in this picture? He is translating the Vulgate. And whenever you find a painting, well, I'm not sure if all paintings of Jerome are this way, but most of them, there's a skull in the painting with him. He is hurriedly translating the Vulgate, that is, the Hebrew and the Greek, into the Latin language, which became kind of the, the universal translation for Western Christendom from that point on. He dies in year 420 there in Jerusalem. And he knows he's going to die. And so he feels very, very committed to finish this task. And so with the skull there, it is a reminder of him that he has a limited amount of time to do this. And so it gives him this sense of urgency to fulfill his call. And I see this as kind of a great, even though it's rather I have to admit, morose looking at it. He's very emaciated looking. And he was a curmudgeon, by the way. They, they, they said he's one of the more argumentative of the great saints. Even though I think what little I know about him, he did have a, a gentle side with him as well. Uh, but uh, it is a sign of our mortality and a way to approach that. And here you see him very committed. He's not cynical. He's not despairing. He's not resigned to the fact that he's going to die. He sees the fact that the skull is there reminding him that he has a limited amount of days that it gives him this urgency to fulfill his purpose. And I'm going to see this as kind of the, the symbol of the art of dying. To have a skull metaphorically in front of us knowing that there are, there are limitations to what we can do. There's an end to this. And that in between now and then, there are great things that we can learn, and one thing that I'm going to try to get across is that there's wisdom to be learned in this, in realizing that we are mortal. Now, this is another famous, it's a mosaic, not a painting, mind you, wait. Uh, and it's in Rome, in the National Museum of Rome, and I will give 50, I'll give a quarter to whoever can translate that at the bottom there. Lydia, you've had Greek over in the seminary. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll get to keep my quarter that way. Know yourself. That's Greek for know yourself. And this comes from Socrates. Know yourself. The unexamined life is not worth living. I'll talk a little bit about Socrates in a minute. But the idea here is that when you know yourself, you'll find out that you're really just skin covering a skeleton that there's just sort of a futility to life, that it in a sense is shadow, not reality. It's too transitory to find eternal meaning in. You have to escape the confines of bodily existence and time and space. And so here he is, he's reclining, he, you know, the skull, and you notice his hand is pointing down. Now, I don't think that's a reference to hell. The Greeks really didn't have that kind of concept that, that you know, the 
the Bible has, the, the New Testament has about hell. But it's a, it's a point here that we are going to dust and that one day we will look like this. And so in some ways the wisdom that we inherited from the Greeks and also from the Romans is that at the end this is our destiny. This is what it's all about. And so we need to realize this. And it is definitely sort of a, no pun intended, a gain stopper, isn't it? To realize this. Is that what it all comes to? That is, I'll just be this skeleton in a reclining position like this? That all that I've believed in, all the great things I've experienced, all the wonderful love, the beauty that I have will just sort of evaporate away? And you know, there are many psalms that sort of suggest this. One of my favorite psalms, and I think it's a profound psalm, and I've kind of made it a pact, uh, hopefully, for the during Lent, I'm going to read this psalm every day, and that's Psalm 103. Go, go and read it, Psalm 103. Uh, the Lord knows that we are but dust. That we are but dust, like the grass of the field. When the wind blows over it, it is gone, and the place thereof know it no more. There's something humbling about this, something true about it as well. But instead of just pointing down, that is, we're going to dust, what I'm going to argue is because of our faith, we can point upward. All right, Epicurus, what I want to look at are some philosophical ideas, at least some big ones that have been given about our death. Epicurus, from whom Epicureanism comes from, was a very influential philosopher, by the way. Uh, for a while, Epicureanism was probably not quite as dominant as Stoicism in the Roman Empire, but it was a very, very dominant philosophy. And it originates here with this guy named Epicurus, who dies in the year 270 B.C. And Epicurus had kind of a simple philosophy. And that philosophy was that as long as you're alive, you're not dead. And when you're dead, you're not alive. So it's insignificant to us. Now, that, that seems rather like a truism, but he meant it in an ethical sense. Our death is insignificant because, basically, our life is insignificant. Epicurus felt like all we were were just sort of molecules or matter in motion. That's all we were. There was no eternal reality. In fact, he argued that you need to quit thinking about dying because it just depresses you. Don't think about God or hell because those things would just worry you. To get the most out of life, just enjoy the simple pleasures have a few good friends, and don't expect anything else out of it. And so here, death is just an indicator of how insignificant our life is. And a lot of people approach life that way. That is just like that reclining figure we're going to die. So why take anything ultimately seriously when it ends in such, such melancholy? Now here's one of the more most famous paintings of a philosopher, and this is Socrates, as depicted right before he drinks the hemlock you see in his, his right hand. Now, you know the story of Socrates. Um, he dies in the year 399 B.C. Uh, he was sort of a gadfly there in Athens going around questioning everybody's beliefs and assumptions about themselves and basically showing just how, how wrong a lot of people were. You know, he was told by the voice of, of Orca, the, uh, I mean, the or uh, of Delphi, that he was the wisest person in the world. And he didn't believe it, and so to prove that he wasn't, he went around trying to find somebody wiser than he, and he couldn't find anybody wiser because they all had inconsistent and contradictory beliefs and prejudicial ideas and so on. And so that got him into a lot of trouble. 
and um, he was eventually tried rather unjustly there in Athens and sentenced to die. And here he has some of his friends around him, Crito being one of them, Phaedo being another, and they're trying to persuade Socrates that he should flee and they, that they had bribed the guards and that the guards would let him go and he could run off and live a full, full and fulfilled life. But he decides not to. And the reason why he says not to is very significant. And that is because for him, death is a release. A release. It's the release of the soul from the body. Now, that kind of language is somewhat familiar with us, but he meant something quite differently than what we traditionally, who believe in the God, a personal God who rewards us with eternal life, uh, think by it. And what Socrates argues is that your soul is eternal in the sense that the knowledge you have is eternal. And when you die, you're released from the confines of bodily existence, time and space, history, so that at last you can see the truth of truth, which is pure knowledge. It's not that your soul is released to a personal God, which is kind of what we think, but it's released into the eternal truths. And nothing can really take that out of your life, because your body is temporal, your soul is eternal. And so when you die, there's a release from the body. And so Socrates argues that what the philosopher does all the time is to study death. The art of dying for Socrates is to study just how insignificant the body existence is and how irrelevant history and time and space are in terms of eternal knowledge. And the philosopher is always educating people to go inward to find these eternal truths so that when death comes, you welcome it because you know you're going to the great lessons for eternity and so on. So death here is a release, and in the Socratic approach to it, it shows kind of the almost irrelevance of life, of bodily existence, of historical existence. In fact, as his famous student Plato would say eventually in the book called The Republic, this life that you and I live, you see me here and you hear me, these are but shadows of what's real. The real, if you remember in the Allegory of the Cave, in that book called The Republic, you probably read that or came across it, what, what Plato argued is that we are all people like prisoners tied in chairs looking at a wall in a cave. And there's a fire behind us and it casts shadows upon the wall. And that's all we know are shadows. And we think that's real. Some way or somehow or another, somebody turns around and sees that it's a fire casting a shadow and then goes out of the cave and sees the sun, which is the source of all light. Well, that's eternal knowledge for the philosopher. The knowledge of this world, of my life, of my relationships, of history, those are but shadows, appearances of reality. And philosophy teaches us then to know these eternal truths. And so I welcome my death philosophically because at last it will give me this eternal knowledge. As, as similar as that may be to a lot of our language, uh, this is not, I think, how the scriptures talk about our death and our eternal state. Author Schopenhauer, very, very interesting guy, slept with a loaded revolver under his pillow every night. Died in the year 1860, uh, incredibly pessimistic. He is, he is the one of which you couldn't be more pessimistic. Uh, it's amazing uh, how he saw the negative things in life. And, he said that life is just an utter tragedy, utter tragedy. And so your death is just a tragic conclusion to a tragic end, I mean a tragic life. And so if you really think about it, everything is frustration. You never have your will completely satisfied according to Schopenhauer. There's just agony, there's just conflict, 
though he realized that we have this yearning for intimacy, uh, but we can never fulfill it. Uh, in fact, the closer we get to people, the more argumentative we become, the more hostile we become. And so uh, he almost ends up as a recluse near the end. His only companion is a couple of poodles uh, <laughs> that he kept. One of them was named Atman, A-T-M-A-N, which is the Sanskrit name for soul. He became kind of a Buddhist, and much of his writing indicates a form of Buddhism. And if you're familiar with Buddhism, you know, the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism is that all life is suffering, all suffering has come to desire. The only way to find happiness is get rid of your desires. And you do that by following the Eightfold Path, like right opinions, right dress, right diet, and so on. But all life is suffering. It's all tragedy. Your death is just the tragic conclusion, unfortunate, of a tragic, unfortunate life. And maybe a lot of people think that way. He is persuasive to a whole kind of mindset that there's nothing really of significance. That what we may think is really grand and eternal, frankly, is just an appearance, like Socrates would say. It's just another way to experience the deception of life. Because in the end, we all die just like the animals die, which indicates we weren't that more significant than the animals. So that's a very tragic sense of life. So these three philosophers look at death in a certain way and then the art of dying in a certain way. Epicurus sees it, the art of dying is that you just need to realize that none of this is really all that significant. And for Socrates, the art of dying is to realize you will finally get release and find what you want, eternal knowledge. And then for Schopenhauer, the art of dying is don't take it you know, personal, but you're no good. <laughs> and your death will show you that. That in the end, you're no good. He used to, uh, uh, hold on, I think this is right. Let me, let me put a, a little asterisk by this. This may be only half true, okay? <laughs> you know, ministers, you've heard of that ministerial uh, uh, allowance? That is, we can tell half-truths. Uh, that he used to go around to cemeteries and I mean, this is interesting, I have to admit. And you see these names, you know, of a hundred years ago or so. And this past fall, I was in London, and our, the, 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 the Sanford Study Center is in Kensington, and uh, we went to a couple of cemeteries, and about, oh, I don't know, maybe six, seven blocks from the Daniel House, the Sanford Study Center, there's this huge cemetery. And we walked around, and you see these graves of two, three, four hundred years ago, and you think, who are these people? What did they amount to? Is this all that it comes to? It does raise that question. So he would walk around cemeteries just to confirm him not to have any hope. <laughs> there's nothing you can really believe in because there's always, for everybody, a tragic end. Now, <clears throat> I've just run across this poet named R.S. Thomas. R.S. Thomas. He's a Welsh poet a priest of the Church of Wales, and he was very keen of knowing the difference between the Church of Wales and the Church of England. Uh, you, you been to Wales? Have you ever been to Wales? It's a magnificent place. You can drive around, they'll have signs in Welsh and in English. They're very, very keen on not becoming Anglified. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of resistance to that. And, and Wales is a beautiful country, um, great mountains, great valleys and rivers and so on, and he wanted to keep things Welsh. He wanted to keep the church Welsh. And uh, he wrote poems to that effect. And uh, here is one poem 
not to being Welsh, but to properly understanding, I think, how we should approach our death. And so this will start my effort here to try to understand how our faith should shape the way we approach our death. That is, the art of dying. He died in the year 2000, so he's a fairly recent poet and priest. I have seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, the one field that had treasure in it. I realize now that I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying. Own to a receding future, not hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside like Moses to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that waits you. And I can just imagine him walking around those beautiful countrysides in Wales and realizing that here was a glimpse of eternity through this powerful experience of natural beauty or some ancient ruin. Uh, speaking of ancient, you ever been to Tintern Abbey? Uh, th- these things fascinate me. Uh, it, it's, you spent a semester in London, didn't you? It, did, you ever, did you go to Fountains Abbey? Not Downton Abbey, but Fountains <laughs> Abbey? I don't think so. Okay. These are those great ruins of these magnificent Benedictine abbeys that Henry VIII you know, basically shut down and destroyed. There in Wales, it's mystical to walk around there. There have been some poems written about Tintron Abbey. Did T.S. Eliot write it? Does that ring a bell with anybody? I don't know. I, I forget. That's another one of my half-truths, I guess. Um, but here he would have these experiences that on someday it would appear to be ordinary. But when the light's just right, the air's just right, the temperature's just right, you get a glimpse of eternity from that. Now, you wouldn't have Epicurus saying that. And probably wouldn't have Socrates saying that. The, the world, according to Socrates, does not reveal beauty. You've got to get away from the world to find beauty. And you definitely wouldn't have Schopenhauer, who sees all of life as tragic, having these kind of glimpses. But I think we can see this. Just like Moses saw an ordinary bush there at Mount Sinai. I know I'm, I'm bragging about where I've been. I've been to Mount Sinai. Uh, and it's a rugged place. It, 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 is, it is an unforgiving place, too, Mount Sinai. We spent a couple of nights at St. Catherine's Monastery, which is right below Mount Sinai. We woke up at 2.30 or 3 o'clock at night, and there were these Bedouins out there with these camels, and we rented a camel and rode up for about two hours and then walked up about 800 steps to get there by, by sunrise to see that. And Moses is up there, and then all of a sudden he sees this burning bush, and he hears this voice. It's an ordinary moment with extraordinary significance. But see, I think part of the art of dying is to realize what what, what he is talking about, Thomas here, that in the transitory of your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. And what I want to argue is that the wisdom that our faith offers us is to, on one hand, both be realistic about our mortality, but on the other hand, to give us the eyes, the ears, the heart, the feelings, the emotions, to sense that even though we are mortal, we are in the grips, we are in the reality of that which is immortal, and that's the presence of God. Now, to sort of set the stage for this, I want to look at some scripture on this. 
These are all very famous passages of which I know you're well aware. And I want to try to talk about these to prepare us to think about when we look at some of these examples, how are they teaching us about what, what we can learn about wisdom, I mean, excuse me, about our mortality. The first one here comes from that very famous you know, book in the, uh, the Bible that a lot of us like to skirt over and not pay a whole lot of attention to. What are the, what's, what's the most famous line out of the book of Ecclesiastes? Sorry? That's right. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he really thinks this through, by the way. The preacher here, the kohiv, that's the Hebrew word. He thinks this through, that we are mortal. In fact, he even makes some incredibly despairing comments. Uh, the, yeah, that we, we die just like dogs die. That the wealthy and the poor die the same way. The good and the bad, they all die the same way. And like walking around those cemeteries, you look at people buried 100 years ago, they're all the same. All right. So if that's the case, then vanity of vanities. But it's a difficult book to interpret. It's not really meant for someone without a lot of life experiences. It's easy to jump to conclusions, like the book of Job. I mean, you really have to, I think, have some profound life experiences to understand what the book of Job is for, like and what it's about. Because it's easy to misunderstand and misuse those great books in the Bible. And Ecclesiastes is one of them. But uh, this verse that I quote here comes from chapter 3. And that is in that wonderful section. Uh, another, I'll give you another chance to earn a quarter here. What famous 60 group turned this into a song? Oh. <laughs> that was too easy. I, too easy. Next time I'll bring a pocket full of quarters. And... All right, verse 1 of chapter 3. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Uh, I'm going to parse this a little bit. To everything, all that happens in our life, the stages that we go through from young to old, from the successes and failures, from the accomplishments and frustrations that we go through. Everything, as the author says here, as a season, it's a time. There's a time for it. Time moves on beyond all of our seasons. Like we're moving out of winter, we're coming into spring. You're not going to stop it. I, I may like fall, but I'm not going to stop. Uh, excuse me, I may like the winter, but I'm not going to stop it. Spring will come. So all of the things that we have have their time. Then he says for every purpose. That is, there's a purpose for each of these times. That purpose is there in that experience. But it doesn't come from us, as he says, it's under heaven. When we look at the seasons that we live through from the point of heaven, we see a purpose to them greater than that moment itself, greater than the season that we're in. From my perspective, let's say, once again, I love winter and don't like spring all that much. Let's say I have bad allergies or something like that. I'm thinking, oh no. Here comes allergy season again. I wish it would stay winter. Well, from my perspective, that may make perfectly good sense. And from Schopenhauer's perspective, I could say, well, life is tragic. Or from Epicurus's perspective, I could say, in light of the fact that I'm just going to move into another time of allergy seasons or frustrations or losses or deaths, then maybe it is not all that significant to begin with. But here, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us from the perspective of eternity, we can see purposes in each of these seasons that we move through. And the very first one that he mentions here is the most comprehensive of the seasons that we experience. And that's a time 
to be born and a time to die. I haven't always lived, and I will not always live. A hundred years ago, I didn't exist. A hundred years from now, I will not exist. From a certain perspective, Epicurus, maybe Socrates a little bit, definitely from Schopenhauer's perspective, that's futility. That's tragedy. I'm nothing. I'll be forgotten just like the flowers of the field will be forgotten. And there is some truth to that. If I were the measure of my life, then frankly, because I'm so temporal, because my mortality may come this afternoon, God forbid, or worse yet, a family member, it may come this afternoon, God forbid, then I could say my season has been totally either insignificant or tragic. But from the point of eternity, as he says, from heaven, there is a purpose when I was born and also when I will die. How can that be? How can the purpose of heaven be so powerful that it will give meaning to even something as my death, as the conclusion, the finality of my life? How can that be? And then, you know, the preacher goes on and says a lot of other very interesting things. Just quickly, I've got a couple of minutes here before I need. You know, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. That is, there can be a purpose in weeping. But there's also a purpose in laughing. And I need to realize whatever stage I move into, there's a purpose there waiting for me. Not because I make it, but because under heaven it is there. And I think this is the great wisdom of Ecclesiastes, that there's a purpose that precedes our efforts to gain it. And it's given to us by the presence of God in our life. And so we move through these times. And there's wisdom in knowing that I need to let the winter go and to welcome the spring. I need to let my life go and to welcome my death because there's a purpose even in my death. Then this great psalm, Psalm 90 here, uh, you probably have memorized this verse. I think it's one of the great ones in all the book of Psalms. Teach us to number our days that we might apply wisdom therein. Apply it, not make it, not dream it up, not conjure it up, but apply it. It's given to us already by learning that just as Jerome did, that here is my mortality. Here is what ultimately will happen to me as my parents and grandparents and on and on, all the way back to Adam and Eve, that I can apply wisdom in knowing that I am mortal, that my days have numbers to them. But I want to read most of the psalm here. Hold on one second. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. For ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it cuts down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years. And if by reason of strength they are eighty years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? 
For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And that's about halfway through the psalm. Here, this great verse of learning wisdom by teaching the number of our days or learning the finitude of our life that we are mortal is within this context is that we are part of the great sort of work of a creator God, of a sovereign Lord over all the seasons, over all of history, of even the mysteries of people's births and deaths and resurrections, that we stand before a God even more powerful than the mystery of the world. I've got a minute. I'm going to chase a rabbit with a second. Um, I think one of the great chapters in all of Scripture to learn what wisdom is is chapter 28 of the book of Job. Uh, it, it is perplexing. It is indirect. It, you, can, you can dwell on this. You can get multiple interpretations out of it. Maybe that's the point of it. Wisdom doesn't come in a neat little formula. But in this, you know, if you know the book, Job has been really arguing with his friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad about why am I being punished here? Uh, they all said, you know, God is sovereign. God is righteous. God punishes the wicked. You're being punished. Therefore, you're wicked. And, and Job saying, this is wrong. This doesn't make any sense. Then all of a sudden, in this long kind of debate that Job has with these three friends, before he finally has this encounter with God in the whirlwind, there is this chapter 28. It's almost like it's editorially inserted in the book. Gives us pause now to dwell a little deeper about what are we looking for in this great book. Well, it mentions that you may dig down in the earth and find gold. But you don't know where the gold comes from. You may look out on the sea and you see the great beasts out there like the whales, the leviathans. But you really don't know where they come from. You look at the stars as numerable as they are. But you don't know the cause of these stars. In other words, the more we look into the nature, the more we're not even going to find the cause of nature. We cannot come up with a final explanation for the way the world is. And then... It says, God is even the mystery of that. God is, in a sense, the mystery of the mystery of creation itself. We're not going to come up with easy formula, little sort of predictable strategies to figure all this out because we are caught up. Our lives are, are brought within the, the, the big providential plan of a creator God. And I think that's what this is telling us. Teach me to number my days so that I may know that my life like the Ecclesiastes says, is experiencing purpose under heaven, that my life is before the powerful sovereign God who gives birth and raises people from the dead, that my life is caught up in a purpose bigger than myself. Teach me that, God. And I think that's the wisdom of knowing that I will die. That this is not my conclusion. The reason why? Because I don't make my life. I definitely don't make my eternal state. God does this, that we are caught before God. And then finally, there's that great, great passage filled with just, I think, tremendous insight that Paul gives here in chapter 14 of Romans. <clears throat> I'm going to back up and put this in context. I've got about four minutes before I need to stop and I can do that. One person esteems one day above another. This is verse 5. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. 
and who who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God the thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now, when I die, I'm not going to have this suit. I'm not going to have my car. I won't have my family. But what will I have? I'll have the Lord. When we are dead, we're not, in a sense, alone, even though we may be absent, divorced, separated from all that we've ever known about the the relationships, the physical experiences that we've had, those have all come to their proper conclusion. But when we're dead, we're not alone. Whether we live, Paul says, or whether we die, we are in the Lord. That the Lord is bigger than my life and also bigger than my death. You know, our, I didn't ask to come in this world. You didn't either. We didn't have anything to do with it, did we? Think of all the little things that had to go into play to get me into this world. My, my father had to come home from the war, and he had to meet my wife. I mean, not my wife, my, my mother. Uh, had to meet my mother rather accidentally. And before long, they were married, and, and I'm the middle of three boys. I, it could have turned out differently, couldn't it? Think about all that. But, as, as the apostle is saying, as I cannot judge your heart about whether you should eat or not eat this meat, as I cannot get into your soul, so to speak, and find out what you are ultimately responsible for, because that's the mystery of your freedom, of your identity, I also cannot determine what God is doing for your life. Because God has brought your life, and God will take your life. Now, that's a harsh word. I, I don't mean it in a trivial or capricious sense. I mean God takes it into God's own life. When I die, I don't die alone. I am brought into the life of God. My, my birth was a gift in a sense then. Because we die into the Lord, in a way, my death is a gift. I enter into a different relationship with God. And then as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, and as we know in the resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate on Easter Day, that we'll be raised again from the dead. Just as I didn't bring myself from the world, I also won't bring in my resurrection. It's done because whether we live or whether we die, we are in the Lord. Okay, what I hope to do from this point on is to look at some of these great biblical models and figures and fiction and so on to try to help us to realize what does it mean to live in the Lord but also die in the Lord as well. All right, I, I, my time is up, but some of you need to leave for whatever reason. Please do. But if, if you have a question or two, all right, see you, Farrell. Uh, anybody want to make a comment or raise a, or you wish you had gone to the euthanasia class instead? <laughs> all right, go in peace, be warm and filled, and I'll see you next Sunday.